10 things to tell. This show is about connection with each other and with ourselves. And the hope is that the things we talk about here will be fuel for better conversations and a personal awareness. This is an interactive podcast. Each episode has a prompt and a topic that I want you to take to your journal, text to your best friend, or answer on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. This is a show about digging deeper and sharing our stuff. I'll go first. Welcome to this episode of the 10 Things to Tell You podcast. It is the middle of the summer and time for a books and reading check-in. You know that these are my favorite episodes, and this time I am joined by someone near and dear to me, a friend I met on the internet years and years and years ago, and who has been a steady voice and leader in my life and in thousands of people's lives through her books and posts and conference, and now in the podcast space herself, and that is Sarah Bessie. Sarah and I met in a Facebook group when we were both full-time bloggers and both had babies on our hips, and suffice it to say, Our lives have changed a lot since those rosy-cheeked days, but her presence and her wisdom in both friendship and also professionally, she has been invaluable to me. She is drawing from a deeper well than I am, it seems, at all times. And I am just so honored that she came on the show to talk about books, a subject we both love, And I especially liked that she highlighted a few Canadian authors in our chat, books and people that were not already on my radar. That was great. And then we also talk about a few popular novels, and then we each share a recent social justice resource that we've learned from in our ongoing education around race. Sarah's going to tell you a little bit more about herself at the beginning of the episode. You can always find out more at sarahbessie.com. But I just wanted to tell you quickly that Sarah is the author of three books, Jesus Feminist, Out of Sorts, and last year's excellent spiritual memoir, Miracles and Other Reasonable Things. She's also about to release a new book in the fall titled A Rhythm of Prayer, a collection of meditations for renewal. Sarah is also the co-founder of the Evolving Faith Conference, which now has a podcast element called the Evolving Faith Podcast. And she writes a very popular and excellent email newsletter called The Field Notes. As always, I will link to all of these things in the show notes, which you can view at 10thingstotellyou.com slash podcast. I also wanted to let you know that since this is a book episode, the books we discuss will be listed in the show notes with links to Amazon. It supports this show and similar episodes when you use these links, but now we have a way to support independent bookstores as well, which I know is a priority for many of us. The website bookshop.org is an alternative to buying books at the big box stores. You can support your favorite indie bookstore through Bookshop, or your purchase will simply go into an earnings pool that will be evenly distributed among independent bookstores, even if they're not using Bookshop. By design, bookshop.org gives away 75% of their profit margin to stores, publications, authors, and others who make up the thriving culture of books. And now, 10 Things to Tell You has its own page with lists of the books from our reading episodes and other special interest categories for you to browse, purchase, and support independent bookstores and the show at the same time. It's a win-win. The link is bookshop.org slash shop slash Laura Tremaine. Of course, I will put a link on social media as well. Okay, now to my books and reading discussion with the smart and lovely Sarah Bessie. Okay, Sarah, friend, I am so happy to have you on the show because I've been podcasting for a while and basically, even though we are very good friends, you are my dream guest. I am. 
so honored. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Okay, we're going to talk about books, and we both have a lot of words, I feel sure. But first, I want you to just tell the audience a little bit about who you are, what you do in this world, about your books, about your conference. I want you to just spill it all. Well, I am so happy to be here, and I just love seeing your face. It feels funny to be like talking officially you know, on recording instead of just chatting, <laughs> cutting up like we usually do. But um, well, I'm Sarah and uh, I live in Western Canada in a town just outside of Vancouver. I'm a writer. I've written three, nearly four books. My first one was called Jesus Feminist. Second one was called Out of Sorts, King Peace of an Evolving Faith. And my third one was uh, Miracles and Other Reasonable Things. I have a new book of prayer coming out this fall. As you might tell, I write a lot of Uh, spiritual memoir and progressive theology books. I also am the co-leader and co-creator of the Evolving Faith Conference, which is like this messy mashup of everything I love, justice and Jesus and good conversations around politics and art and all the things that you're not supposed to discuss, I guess, in polite company (laughs) with a wonderful group of misfits um, who are all kind of in this space of deconstructing their faith and trying to reorient in a new direction. And so it's a really fun and uh, progressive and interesting, curious group of people. And yeah, I'm a wife. I have four kids as well. Mike, Brian, I've been married for nearly 20 years, which feels bananas. And you and I have been friends for many, many years, and I love you. That's it. I love you. We have been online friends and then in real life friends. In fact, you're not the first person that I've told this story about, but we were online friends and then you flew sight unseen. You did not know me. You flew to my lake house in the country in the middle of nowhere (laughs) for us to meet the first time. It's a good thing I was not a murderer, nor were you. It could have gone either way, really, but... (laughs) It was so fun for me. That was like one of the very first times that I, because this would have been what, 2012, I think, right? Mm. My kids were so small. And I think this was the very first time then because we had three kids, we had our first three and four years. And then we had one last little baby a number of years later to kind of just make a fool of ourselves over. But at that time, I just had never left them. And it was like my first time, like getting on a plane and going, like I went to another country. And I remember walking out to like the airport bar and seeing everyone and just being like, my internet people are real. Like, it was so wonderful. (laughs) It was so crazy for me to invite like 17 women, most of whom I had never met before, to my lake house. And it it just was magic, wasn't it? It was just a really special, special weekend. And I highly encourage people when they make friends on the internet, and, and you know, and you can tell the difference when that's a real connection, when that's a real relationship, to then make it happen in real life. And it just like deepens the friendships. And it's such a gift of technology that we're able to do that, you know? Oh, absolutely. It was a it was a life changer for me, I felt. Those relationships, those friendships. Um, and have sustained, right? We're all still, all still friends. We still get together, right? Mm-hmm. And we still all try and make an effort to try to see one another and, you know, meddle in each other's lives. It's wonderful. I also wanted to say about your books, which I've loved all of them. They have special places in my heart because I do not read a lot of uh, faith-based stuff anymore. And I will read everything that you have ever written in the world. I have passed around your first book, Jesus Feminist, so many times. And then your latest book, or the one that came out last year, not the one that's about to come out, Miracles and Other Reasonable Things. Uh, Sarah, that book is incredible. Hmm, thank you so much. It really is. I just, I I love that book so much. And I'm not even sure if I've ever told you that privately. So I want to make sure I tell you it very publicly how good that book is, how well written, how special. That's just a really wonderful book. I really want people to read that as a memoir. You, it does not even matter where you are on the spiritual spectrum. Reading that book is, it's such a beautiful story and you write it so well. Oh, thank you so much. You know, it was... You know, that one was an interesting one to write because a few years had passed since I wrote my first two. And my first two are much more like, well, you know, like they're much more like, hey, here's this theological idea I want to explore. And with Miracles, it was more like straight memoir, which was a new muscle for me to flex as a writer and a whole new discipline to kind of explore. I don't know if I'll ever do that again, but it was great to try it one time. And I'm really glad, really glad you liked it. That means a lot. Wait, say more about that. Why do you think that you won't do 
memoir versus sort of like theology exploration. I loved the um, memoir. It was amazing. I don't know. Maybe I'm sick of myself. I don't know. <laughs> it sounds funny, but you just kind of go so deep into your own motivations and thoughts and history and feelings. It is a very different muscle to work. And so, you know, it gave me all the original Greek and all the commentaries on these really weird theological things. I'm like, this feels easier than actual self-awareness. And so <laughs> maybe I'll do it again at some point, I think. But yeah, it was a it was a new thing to try. And I really actually enjoyed it. I enjoyed the exploration of it, challenge of it, the particularity even, right, which is, I think, something that's really um, necessary in a good memoir. And the thing that often draws me to, because that's one of the genres that I love to read, is spiritual memoirs, especially by women. And so, yeah, it was an it was an interesting experience. And yeah, and a hard one at the same time. Well, I know because I just wrote a book all about myself. (laughs) (laughs) But the difference between you and me is It's a good thing we're both terribly interesting. (laughs) That's true. But I also loved it. I was like, oh, we're going to talk more about me. Fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think of me? (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. I just loved it so much. No, just kidding. Except not kidding, really. Um, but you said <laughs> you said spiritual memoir is one of your favorite. I like people on these book shows to give us an idea of their reading tastes in general before we go into the actual conversation, just so we kind of know where one another is coming from. What are your reading tastes like? How often do you read? What do you read? What's your comfort read? Favorite authors? Anything that you want to say about that? Well, I read, I mean, my husband jokingly calls me like the pseudo hermit bookworm. This, it's my happiest place to be. And so always has been, right? I've always been a huge reader. And I'm also a very fast reader. And so that means I get to read really widely, which is great. And so I read a lot of spiritual memoirs, a lot of progressive theology, but I have just such a huge love for women's fiction. Being lost in a good story, especially, I mean, if it's you know, a strong female lead, it's pretty much created in the lab for me, I think, if it's especially if it's in a historical context. <laughs> but I really like, you know, uh, authors that I would really enjoy would be ones like Barbara Brown Taylor, or Madeline Langell is someone whom I really love, because she, uh, she was able to kind of straddle both nonfiction and fiction writing. Kathleen Norris, uh, Richard Wagamese is a Canadian author that I really, really appreciate and like. But even just, you know, going back to a lot of other ones, like, you know, my business partner and one of my best friends uh, who passed away last year was Rachel Held Evans. Her books are phenomenal and really, really, um, I never tire of rereading them. They just hold up and hold up and hold up. I think she'll be, you know, our generation's voice, right? I think especially when we're looking back and, you know, yeah, there's just a, a number of books that I love to read. I read almost daily. I find that I like to read a lot of like the harder or heavy lifting books, the ones that really challenge me or really find, I find transformative in terms of like ideas or embodiment or justice or how we engage with the world. That works really well for me to read in the morning and in the afternoons. But when it comes evenings, I'm really just wanting like a really good fiction book and a good story. So yeah, I mean, in terms of like some of my favorite books for nonfiction, it'd probably be for Madeline Langell, it would be the Crosswicks uh, series, which starts with a circle of quiet. It's kind of this memoir of a life of faith and art and writing, but also motherhood. And that was one of the first books that I felt really gave me permission to write, um, not in spite of my life, but because of it. There were so few theological voices at that time that I had access to who were writing in the midst of a very full and busy life. It felt like oftentimes like the voices, especially theologically, are, you know, predominantly male and white uh, American. And so, you know, as a Canadian who's not had, you know, this tremendous theological education, entirely self self-taught. As a woman, as a mother, I wanted to find theological voices that reflected a lot of those experiences that were just a little bit outside of the the gates, right? Let alone those of us who are more progressive or more from like the liberal side of, of the church, perhaps. So Madeline Langell was one of the first ones. I think Kathleen Norris was another one. Uh, we talked about Rachel's books as well. But even from like a fiction perspective, I always really loved Poisonwood Bible by Barbara Kingsolver. I returned to that one over and over. Hannah Coulter and all of the the novels by Wendell Berry, like Jaber Crow and Nathan Coulter, like just incredible writing about like place and people and characters. 
But of course, you know, my two like big favorites are Ellen Montgomery, original author of um, the Anna Green Gables books, but always loved and read all of her catalog. And that shows up actually a lot in Miracles and Other Reasonable Things. And also Louise Penny. Really love the Inspector Gamache books as well. And, you know, being, I think, of my own temperament, the idea of like cozy murder really appreciates that. I really seem to be drawn to where like all the violence happens off page and it's more about like characters and people in place and like mystery solving, but it's also very like warm. <laughs> so I'm sure it's a genre, but that's, that's one that I've just devoured. I've probably read all of the Inspector Gamache books three or four times through. Wait, so you're a rereader then? Like a, oh, I'm a, a huge rereader. I don't understand that. <laughs> you know, here's, here's what it is. I reread like crazy. And almost every book that is on my shelf in my house is a book that I've read at least three times. The ones that I read just for reading one time or reading new, I usually have on Kindle, all right? I am just a very aggressive patron of the library. And so I just, you know, will request books from the library. But I actually don't usually buy a book unless I've read it at least twice. I love to be surprised by details I missed the first time around, go deeper with characters that I maybe missed the first time around. But also there's something very comforting about knowing how something's going to end. Can I tell you something really terrible? You might want to delete this from your people. It will cause a revolution in your comment section. Um, Whenever I'm reading like a mystery book or a book I'm not too sure about, I always read the last two chapters first (laughs) and then I know how it's going to end. Okay. I've heard you say that before and I just erased it from our friendship because I I cannot believe this. It's a deal breaker. I'm sorry. (laughs) I feel like I cannot handle it. I'm like, I need to know that I'm going to like how it ends so that I can invest in reading the rest of it. It is, it is, listen, unforgivable. I know, but this is a, this is a tactic I have. I actually just don't even understand it. I also don't understand a reread for comfort. I mean, like, I know why I can argue why people do it, but personally, I don't understand it because I think I would only reread for really purposeful reasons. Like if I was really studying the work or the knowledge in the work or something, I don't think I would never reread for comfort, I don't think. Also, I don't want to waste my time on a reread because I just try to win at reading. And if <laughs> if you're reading the same thing, you're just getting behind when you could be advancing in the reading race. <laughs> you could count them. <laughs> you could count them over and over and over again. <laughs> you do win at reading, Laura. You do. You're the big winner. <laughs> I am sure that you can agree that literally no one wants to smell bad. But sometimes regular underarm deodorant just isn't cutting it. Or maybe it's not your underarms that need help. With Lumi, you don't have to worry. Lumi is the first of its kind in total body deodorant and is fully safe to use anywhere on your body. It is clinically proven to block odor all day and control it for up to 72 hours. The secret is mandelic acid, where instead of masking odor with a fragrance, it stops the odor before it even starts. I especially love that Lumi deodorant is baking soda and paraben free, as well as pH balanced for safe use on all areas of your body. You can choose from a variety of bright scents like clean tangerine, lavender sage, and toasted coconut. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like a mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get 15% off all Lumi products with our exclusive code. And if you combine the 15% off with the already discounted starter pack, that equals over 40% off the starter pack. Use code U for 15% off your first purchase at lumideodorant.com. That's code U, Y-O-U, at lumi, L-U-M-E, deodorant, D-E-O-D-O-R-A-N-T.com. So I want to start and talk about some of our very favorites that we have read lately. I'll be talking about things I've read in the past couple of months. You feel free to talk about anything you've read in 2020, no matter whenever it was published. Share with me, what's the first book that you want to share of like one of the best things you've read? Well, my, probably 
one of the books that will be my, I genuinely think it'll probably be my favorite book of the year, was called The Dearly Beloved. Did you, have you heard about this book by Kara Wall? Yeah, I read it. Yeah. So I don't know what your experience was with it, but I feel like it was like it hit like created in the lab sweet spot for me. I remember like closing the last page of it and just kind of like gently just holding it against my chest and then picking up my phone and texting like four girlfriends and being like, you need to read this. It is this very grown up and clear eyed and empathetic and honest and um, moving exploration of marriage and faith. And you know, these themes of duty and time and even friendship. So if you're someone who really loved like Marilyn Robinson's Gilead books or Wendell Berry's novels, like this would be, this would be one that you would really love. I loved this book. I liked this book too. It's about two couples. The men are preachers. The women are very, very different type of women. And, you know, it hits all those themes you already said. I loved the first three quarters of that book, like loved it, like was really enjoying myself as I read that book. But then I felt like they just sort of wrapped it up. There was almost like a, and then 10 years later, this happened or whatever. (laughs) When I wanted it to be, I could have read like hundreds of more pages about these people. No, totally agree. Totally agree. Especially because it was such an intimate book about friendship. The thing I love too, is that nobody was really like the villain or, there was great compassion for every single one of the characters. You could see just like from the author's perspective that she genuinely understood and liked each one of them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there, none of them were really, you know, kind of set up as, as the big hero in the midst of it. It was very ordinary. And yet same thing. I felt like I could have stayed with them for a hundred more pages. Yeah. That was my only criticism of that book, but otherwise I agree with you. That is, a, was a wonderful book. How about you? Okay. What was your first one? For me, I'm actually going to cheat a tiny bit, but it's okay because it's my show. (laughs) I'm going to talk about two in one turn because what sort of broke me out of my um, fiction reading slump was a couple of thrillers. And you can't talk too much about thrillers without giving spoilers. So the two that I read that totally surprised me, maybe I had low expectations, Because, you know, thrillers are hit or miss, to be honest with you. Like sometimes there'll be like a huge hit thriller and I'll read it and I'm just not that impressed with it. And so then I feel like maybe I'm not a thriller reader. I don't know. Like there's a, I just feel like they're, I don't always trust buzz around thrillers almost more than like any other popular genre. So anyway, the two that I read that I was like, oh, well, this is a wonderful thing is A Good Marriage by Kimberly McCrete. I hope I'm saying her name right. And then one from a few years ago, A Good Marriage came out this year and was pretty popular, I think. But one from a few years ago that I had on my Kindle, bought on a Kindle sale, was The Mother-in-Law by Sally Hepworth. And A Good Marriage was just sort of your stereotypical thriller. And I don't mean that as a knock at all. I mean, like it had all of the things that I love about a thriller, you know, like multiple options of who could have done it. Um, a love triangle, a little bit of drugs, a little bit of, you know, intrigue, whatever. All the the things we like. (laughs) (laughs) All the good things in life. Just kidding. But, uh, so it was good. And then, and then this is like the real huge endorsement of an actual thriller is, uh, the ending surprised me. I did not see the ending coming, but not in like a zany way. I don't know if you've read these. There's been some thrillers in the last couple of years where like they try to have a big twist at the end and the twist is so bizarre. It's almost like the twist is is like, and then aliens descended and that's who did it. And now it's over. And you're like, what? I can't be right. So a good marriage had a satisfying and yet unpredictable ending. So I really like that. And then the mother-in-law what I liked about it is it was also a, you know, thriller with like, there's multiple motives of who could be dead, who could be the killer, all of these things. But there was a a layer of commentary in the mother-in-law that I really liked, you know, that went a little deeper than usual. So there's like some women dynamics. So obviously it's like a a mother-in-law and a daughter and a daughter-in-law and some social commentary and some marriage commentary that I 
I thought was really like thought provoking. And then, you know, that's not something you say about a lot of thrillers is that they're really thought provoking. <laughs> and I got that out of the mother-in-law and I was like, oh, this is such a surprise. And I do know that people really liked that book a couple of years ago. I remember seeing it around a lot and I, you know, that's why I bought it on Kindle sale, but I had just not gotten to it. Both of those were meant to be palate cleansers for me after heavier novels. And both of them were, became much more than that. Like I was like, oh, these are great books. I'm happy to read books like this on the weekend. Like I should read more of things that are entertaining. I don't know. Like, you know, I can get bogged up in my mind about like what I should be reading or serious reads or like, I don't know, whatever. And then when I read something that I'm like, oh, this is, I'm just like enjoying myself as I flip these pages (laughs) and I really like it. No, it's a great feeling. I don't know if you've ever read any of Blake Crouch's books, but I, he falls a little bit outside of my typical genre in that it's usually more of like a sci-fi time travel or time blurry kind of book. And they have a bit of like a, a thriller element to them. Anyway, I pick those books up and I disappear for the whole evening. I think the last one I read was Recursion. And the first oh, one was Dark, so good. Dark Matter. And I just like was like, you all have to fend for yourselves. I have clocked out until I have turned the last page and you're all on your own. And I just kind of went into that, like, you know, that's that spot you get to in reading where you're just like, the house could burn down and I would not even notice because I am so here, so focused in that. And Blake Crouch did that for me too. Those are great, like a Saturday night read, right? Or a Saturday read where you just are ready to just dive right in and stay there. Yeah, I still think about recursion. And I read that last summer and I loved that book. Oh, I couldn't shut up about it. It was so good. I'm glad you brought that up. Okay, what's your next one that you want to share? Well, the next one I was going to share was one called Five Wives, which is by a Canadian author named Joan Thomas. So I don't know if a lot of Americans have heard of Joan Thomas, but she is just an incredible novelist. But the reason why I picked up this book, some of the content may be not as familiar to certain readers, but if other readers grew up in anything that was kind of evangelical adjacent, they probably heard about this group of missionaries who had this experience in Ecuador. It would have been like Elizabeth Elliot, Nate Saint, you know, that uh, Operation Aka kind of thing. And that the story is, of course, that these men went in to Ecuador, they had their wives and their families all with them, and they were killed by one of the tribes in Ecuador. And then their wives it kind of like carried on the work in the ministry and whatever else. It was held up as kind of like this great, amazing story. Of course, if you've read the Poisonwood Bible by Barbara, by Barbara uh, Kingsolver, you're just kind of like, hmm, I wonder what was really kind of like the story underneath the story. And so Joan Thomas goes to the story underneath that story. And she literally retells it as a novel, which is completely fascinating. And she does it from the perspective of the wives um, of these missionaries. And I would probably warn that like, if you're someone who still has that story on a pedestal or its players, then it would probably be pretty disruptive. But if you have had any interest or exposure or understanding of like decolonizing conversations, particularly around Christianity, religious zeal, um, an evangelical kind of hero complex or culture and identity um, exploitation, like this is definitely a book you want to check out. But even if you have no under no connection to that story or those players at all, you've never heard of it. It's still a phenomenal novel about like the interior lives of women, religious fervor, the different types of personalities and how they all connected around this idea in the fifties and sixties. And so, yeah, it's a phenomenal book and was one as well that I just read literally in one sitting and cannot stop talking about it. It got a lot of cultural buzz up here as well. So wait, is it completely fictionalized or is it actually based on the wives from that trip? Like, is it actually based based on them? Yeah, it's research based. It's actually based on them. So there's some, you know, I think so definitely it's a retelling. I mean, you can only so much you can know about the interior lives of people. She treats it more like a novel, but it's deeply researched and and deeply rooted in the actual story and the actual historical events. Oh, I'm going to read that for sure. I mean, listen. I haven't thought about Elizabeth Elliot since I was in college, <laughs> but still at that whole idea, definitely piques my interest. And I hadn't even heard of that one. 
Yeah, it's, you know, like I said, I think sometimes Canadian authors can kind of fly under the, the radar for a lot of American readers. And it's a pity because there are some incredible storytellers and writers, um, especially up and coming right now in in a lot of places within Canada. And so, yeah, that's a that's a good one to, to, to jump in with. You know, another one that I read that was quite similar and might connect is from another Canadian author and her name is Mary, uh, Miriam Taves. And she wrote one called Women Talking. That oh, is, I have that on my Kindle. Oh, do you? Oh, my goodness. You are going to love it. So it is like set in this very isolated religious community and this terrible thing has happened and the women begin to tell the story. And it's like basically kind of almost set up like meeting minutes, like like notes in a meeting, which it sounds like just such an interesting way of telling the story. And there's like one man who's allowed to be in the room just to take the notes while the women try to figure out what happened and how to handle it and how to go back out into their lives or not um, in this this very isolated religious community that is very patriarchal. And so anyway, it is a phenomenal story. And just the layers of it's also I mean, it was a, a great one, but she's another one I would I would recommend if you like those kinds of books. Okay, thank you for highlighting Canadian authors especially. And I I bought that women talking on my Kindle also. You know, I take advantage of a Kindle sale. I have hundreds of books on there that I haven't gotten to yet, but that one sounds amazing. Okay, so the next one I want to talk about is a book of essays, you know, memoir, my favorite genre pretty much, and that is called Here for It by R. Eric Thomas. I love that book so much. Listen, I this love him is, so much. <laughs> seriously, this book is a contender for me for favorite of the year. I, you know, I had multiple friends recommended and they said it was funny and fine. I had not been very familiar with him before, but I was in the mood for funny and I love essays. But, you know, I just didn't have a ton of expectation one way or the other. I started that book and I was like, I kept putting it down and like, oh God, this is so good. <laughs> In fact, there are some themes. Now, listen, our Eric Thomas is a gay black man, and I am a straight white woman. I don't know why I related to him so much, but I did. And in fact, some of the stories that he tells have some similar themes and some similar threads to some things I talk about in my book. And I was reading his book and being like, this is 400,000 times better than the way I talk about this. I really was. I couldn't believe how much with completely different life experiences. I mean, everything from growing up in different regions of the country, like really, really different life experiences, how he makes it so relatable. And so I just felt like a connection to him and not as an observer. You know, I love to read interesting people's stories, but I don't often feel like that old trope of like, oh, I think we would be friends in real life. Like, I just don't really like feel that. I just think, oh, this is an interesting story told by an interesting person. No. When I was reading Here For It, I was like, I think I think I love this man. <laughs> <laughs> we should recruit him to the lake house next time. <laughs> oh, we should. No, he just is just funny. He's able to land a really strong punch in writing. I think comedic writing, comedic acting, it's so difficult. People do not appreciate how difficult it is. And I just could not believe how he could make a joke and a point so quickly and so fiercely. That book is just so good. And I laughed out loud. Again, that's a thing I don't say lightly. I'm not a big book laugher. I loved this book. I just loved it so much. Also, it has a very good cover. Let's just call it like we see it. Okay, it does. It does. And it is absolutely hilarious and um, surprisingly profound and deep and wise and tender, right? Like just there's, he's, I don't know. It's, it was a phenomenal book. I really, really enjoyed that one too. That was a great, yeah, book. good choice. It really is. It's going to be tops. It's going to be on my list for sure. And it might be top of the list at the end of the year. I could already tell when I was reading it, just, I was just really, really impressed by Here For It by R. Eric Thomas. Okay. What's your next one? My next one, I'm going to take a turn into nonfiction. Is that okay? Yeah. All right. So I had a couple of different ones that really mattered a lot to me this past year and deeply shaped me. Um, One of them is uh, Braiding Sweetgrass. Have you heard of this one? It's by Robin Wall Kimmerer. So it's Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants 
which does not sound like it would be in my wheelhouse at all. <laughs> I don't do the science thing. <laughs> so. Wait, I had to, I, I paused when you said plants. Like I know. Yeah, there it is. So the author is a botanist. And she's also a citizen of the Potawatomi nation. And she brings this holistic perspective of like science and indigenous wisdom together, just like really, really beautifully and writes about ecology, but also about living in the world and like your sense of place and curiosity. But all of that does not prepare you for how incredibly beautifully it's written. And like you take your time and savor every word because you feel yourself being like almost reoriented to the world by, mm. by this book. Like it's immersive and expansive. Like I would even dare to use like a word that I hardly ever use, which is transcendent. It's really, really brilliant. I mean, you hear, you hear the title and you're like, oh, I think it's about plants. And it is like, it is about plants <laughs> in some, on some level, but it's about us and creation and the community of creation and God and the land and science, which apparently I love now. <laughs> so <laughs> this is such, such a good book. And it was one that I took my time with. And I don't do that with a lot of books, right? Like I said earlier, I'm, I'm usually like a go through them pretty quick, absorb, comprehend, move on. Um, and this was one I, I took my time with like over, over time, like morning reading you know, kind of thing that you would do, like when you wake up just to kind of reorient your day or reorient yourself to the world. And it is, like I said, so beautifully written. Where do you find books like this? Like, where do you get your recommendations? Mostly, you know, I get recommendations from friends a lot. And from oftentimes, like there's certain places where I really rely on uh, recommendations. So uh, one person that um, recommended this book in particular was Caitlin Curtis, who's a friend of mine and wrote the book just came out called Native Identity, Belonging and Rediscovering God. And a big part of my own journey in these last number of years has been trying to engage more faithfully and honestly with the um, Truth and Reconciliation Commission here in Canada, with learning and sitting at the feet of a lot of Indigenous learning, and so and trying to decolonize my faith even, right, which is like a big, heavy, <laughs> probably lifelong process for, for me anyway. So, But anyway, uh, Caitlin really recommended it, and she's someone who I just trust implicitly. She's such a good leader. And so anyway, she's mentioned braiding sweetgrass. And so that was one uh, that I picked up there, but there's other places where I pick up a lot of my books. Like we have this contest here in Canada called Canada reads and it's run by CBC, which is our national broadcaster. And they have, you know, five people will come and they'll pick a book that they think all Canadians need to read right now that will speak to like the moment we're in. And then they have like almost like a reality show competition around reading. And so my sister and I, every year we buy all of the books or we get them from the library and we read them all. And then we like listen to all the radio programs to find out like they, they discuss the books. And then every week, another book is kind of like eliminated. And then you're left with like the book. This is the Canada Reads winner that everybody needs to read right now. So that's where I find a lot of new um, Canadian authors and writing that just becomes like some of my new favorite stuff that I've uh, encountered and been able to come across. Um, and that's been really helpful too. Oh, interesting. Well, I, as a lot of listeners probably have also been doing in the last couple of months, tried to make reading from own voices, from people of color, just really seeking out their stories and their voices in my reading life in the last couple of months and have enjoyed that. And I think that that is a priority and uh, something that a lot of readers should be paying attention to is just sort of the voices that they're letting into their life. But also I have been doing that on purpose for a few years now as I've gotten more invested in the work around racial bias in America. And I'm saying all that caveat to say because the book I'm going to talk about next is by a white woman. However, she is talking to other white women about how they can learn some of these complex topics, especially if they're new to them that are coming up around the Black Lives Matter movement, that are coming up around talking about police brutality or uh, some of the things that have come up about America's history and founding. And these are loaded topics. These are hard topics a lot of times for white women. And so I feel like this book called Raising Our Hands by Jenna Arnold is important to talk about because 
I believe deeply that it is the burden of the majority to educate the majority. And so that's what she's doing. She's a white woman who's writing directly to white women. And so obviously that is not a voice of color. (laughs) But I believe in this philosophically so much that we need to be learning and that we shouldn't be putting that burden on people of color to be doing the teaching. So in my own education, because I wanted to sort of hear what this teaching was going to be a little bit. And I think that this is an excellent resource. I almost want to do like a book club around it or something like that, because I do think that if some of the things that are happening in American headlines in the last, I don't know, let's say year to five years, especially depending on where you are, when you started paying attention, that there's a lot of questions that sometimes we're scared to ask. And Yes, we all have Google and we all have access to the library where we can like read things and and hear people's opinions online or whatever. But what I like about Raising Our Hands, this book, is that it's sort of just like, I don't want to say textbook in a negative way because it's very, it's easy reading. She's a, a casual, light writing style that is great for this moment. But it's like, here are the basics white women, here is what you need to know. Here is the basics of what these issues are. Here's how you can get involved or how you can start the conversation or how you can learn more. You know, she links out to other resources. It's just like a primer for, you know, hey, white women. To me, it struck the right tone of not being like self-congratulatory by any means, but also not being like overly preachy. It was more like teaching in the best possible sense of that word. And I just haven't seen anything else out there like that. I know there are online courses. I know there are amazing voices, white people educating white people, voices of color sharing their experiences. I know there's a lot of that online. To me, this was like a book form, perfect for the person who is like, I am a little nervous to ask this of someone, or I'm not totally sure what to Google here. Or sometimes if you are trying to research something, you you Google it and then you get like two very extreme different answers or explanations. And not that we're not all qualified to read between the lines of that type of thing. But I don't know. I just felt like raising our hands to me was just like, here it is. I feel like I'm not using the right words around this because I want to say it was almost like the girlfriend chat version of it. That makes it sound like that she doesn't treat these issues with a seriousness. And she does very much so. But it's accessible, I guess, is a better word of like, you know, I didn't feel like shamed by it or I didn't feel like an idiot about it. And I don't know if I did this book justice, except that I do want people to be engaged in this type of work. I feel very passionately about that. And so I'm always trying to give resources to that. And this is another one. I think it's a book that needed to be written. So many people need this. And so, yeah, I just wanted to highlight that. It's called Raising Our Hands by Jenna Arnold. You know, that goes along with one that I was going to mention that is actually written by a woman of color called Me and White Supremacy. And it is very similar in terms of like, you know how one of the catchphrases kind of right now in this cultural moment is like, you've got to do your work, right? You've got to do the work. And oftentimes I think that people who have been marinating you know, in white supremacy your whole life are like, what does that even mean? And I felt like this was a very, very practical workbook type of read that helps people to actually do the work. So it'd be like a great one for like a book club, like you were saying, it was called Me and White Supremacy, How to Combat Racism, Change the World and Become a Better Ancestor by F. Layla Said. And so it's a 28 day practice in this book. And it actually is more of like, it's both a, a read and a workbook component to it. Um, it started off as a viral Instagram challenge, which I find really fascinating in terms of like even how it speaks to kind of the the moment and the questions. And it was very interactive, but it's been like refined and gathered together for like this maximum impact that moves that work of, you know, combating racism, dismantling white supremacy, all the, the things that we're kind of talking about right now at this cultural moment, but it moves it from like your head to your heart, to your hands which I find really um, helpful. And so, yeah, I went through that workbook last summer and I still reference it often. I, I think it's really, really good homework and it would be, you know, another option as well if someone was wanting to, to look in, into and begin to kind of lean into some of those conversations right there. Okay, so I'm going to take a real turn and talk about 
I'm just going to mention one novel I loved. Look at me. I'm cheating again. I don't care. I'm going to mention a novel I loved, but I don't have a ton to say about it other than I loved it. And that's Writers and Lovers by Lily King. Did you read that? I have it yet. I have it on like the tip top of my to read list because I loved her book Euphoria so much. And so tell me about this one. It is a wonderful book. It's just like very well written. It's literary fiction. It's about like a broke writer who's a waitress and she's trying to finish her novel and she's dating other artists, one like a starving artist, writer person. And then she sort of falls in love with a very successful, like bestseller, older artist. And I just loved it. It's just the perfect mix of like creative angst and kind of like sarcastic, funny. And I just was like, oh, this is a wonderful book. <laughs> but there's not a ton I, I want to say about it besides that I just loved it. I thought it was a wonderful, wonderful book. It will also be one of my favorites of the year. And then I'm just going to mention quickly that there's this book that I did not like while I was reading it and now I can't get it out of my head, <laughs> which means that it's worthy of discussing. It's called The Knockout Queen by Rufy Thorpe. And it's about teenagers, which is just not really like my fave. Like it's not YA. It's not geared towards a younger audience, but it is about a younger audience. I don't like YA. I don't like teenager books typically. But I started this without really knowing exactly what it was about. It's graphically sexual. So uh, if you're a sensitive reader, this is not for you. But it's about sort of a underprivileged youth who is struggling and he sort of moves in with his neighbor who is a wealthy teenager who has sort of, they sort of have different sets of struggles. I'll just put it that way. And I'm reading it thinking, this is not my thing, but I also couldn't put it down, which is very interesting about a book. And I like had to know what happened, even as I'm openly thinking, I don't think I like this book. (laughs) I still am compulsively reading it. And then when I got to the end, it's so good, but I didn't like it. Isn't that weird? That is weird. It was interesting. And that's sort of why I wanted to mention it is I was like, this isn't really for me, but I'm super appreciating it. You know, like how sometimes you can listen to a certain kind of music or something and be like, I can see that this is really excellent, but like, I don't want to really listen to it that much longer. It's kind of like that. Like, I just was like, I appreciate this so much. She's doing some things very masterfully with these complicated teenage characters and their lives. But also, there was something about it that repelled me. That's probably a different psychological thing. But but just as a longtime reader, I don't have that type of reaction. I'm quick to put a book down if I don't like it. And so I just felt like there's something, there's a lot to this book that I'm feeling this, a, a really strong push and pull with it. So yeah, it was worth mentioning for that reason alone. It's called The Knockout Queen by Rufy Thorpe. Do you have your last one? And then we will we will wrap up. Sure. Um, the last one I was going to mention was one that I loved a lot and then have revisited since we've all been in like the apocalypse, apparently. <laughs> so, I think it might really serve people to know about it. It's called uh, Try Softer. And the subtitle is A Fresh Approach to Move Us Out of Anxiety, Stress, and Survival Mode and Into a Life of Connection and Joy. So sign me up. But it's... Yes, um, Yes. please (laughs) tell me exactly all of those things. It's by a trauma therapist whose name is Andy Kolber. And she really tackles kind of the underlying messages that oftentimes we'll receive to, you know, like hustle harder, work more, do, do, do. And like, you can just try harder. You could fix this. And like a lot of us, I have had my own experiences with trauma, particularly in the last few years. And I found this book to be so healing and freeing and practical at the same time. And it's not just for like big trauma, right? Um, which I think, you know, you, you can kind of, one of the things we can sometimes do is like almost rank trauma, like, oh, if it's not as bad as so-and-so, then what right do I have to feel scared or sad or afraid or um, traumatized even? And so she also kind of leans into like those little T traumas. And so it's, I feel like right now, especially, you know, just a really, really important message for people to hear because it's very healthy and helpful and grace-filled and just felt like uh, an exhale 
I guess is the best way to put it. And one that I read, underlined, reread immediately, started telling people about. And so since so many of us, I think, are going through like a collective trauma right now, I found the practices and the teachings, but also the pathways to be super helpful. So yeah, that was my that was my other one that I've really appreciated this year. Okay, well, that's a perfect one to end on. And we should all rush out and buy, apparently. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it's, she's such a great guide. You know how it is like when you feel like you're in some, like in good hands, like mm-hmm. where you just kind of like walk in the room or you walk into a book and you're just like, oh, thank God, someone grown up. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> yes. Okay. Thank you, Sarah, for being on the show with me, for spending so much time talking about books, my favorite subject with one of my very favorite people. I absolutely loved this. I enjoyed it so much. You were just the best conversation partner. I love you. I love you. I'm Laura Tremaine, and you've just listened to the 10 Things to Tell You podcast. You can find the show notes and subscribe to episode emails at 10thingstotellyou.com slash podcast. And you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at 10 Things to Tell You. Remember, this is an interactive podcast. I have 10 things to tell you, and you have 10 things to tell. So take this topic to your journal or a friend or post on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. These episodes are meant to bring connection with others and ourselves and spark better conversations. Thanks for listening. Now go share some. I love you, friend. I love you too. And I also heard their ice rattle in the sauna class, and now I'm just <laughs> I'm upset. <laughs> Next, you'll pull out tots, and it'll be like a, just a knife in my heart. <laughs> oh, here I am, just gonna eat my Chick Fil A. Get out of here. <laughs>